sadly, uh, Satan pops up again. So uh, I don't know if we can have a verse up there. Um, cool. Um, big thanks to Al. He's going to have to do a little swapping around with some cables in a minute, but uh, we'll be fine uh, <laughs> if we pray. So Zechariah chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Uh, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Uh, and I stumbled on this uh, during a prayer meeting on Monday night, the Hungry Prayer Meeting. If you want to come and help the church, one really great way is to come to a monthly Hungry Prayer Meeting. It's a really lovely time together and sometimes very powerful times together too. So I sat there and I opened the Bible and thinking what we're going to preach on, on Monday night, uh, what we're going to preach on on Sunday. And the Bible literally fell open to this. And uh, the Lord just, the first, first verse grabbed me. Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not, is this not the man, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off those filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin. I'm going to put fine garments on you. And then he said, put a clean, then I said, this is Zachariah speaking now. He said, Zachariah's kind of standing on the, on the sidelines and he can't, he just blurts out in the middle of this vision, put, clean, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I'll give you a place among these standing here. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associated seats, associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm coming to bring my servant, the branch. See, the stone I've set in front of you, Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it that says, The Lord Almighty, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. Does that sound familiar? In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Brilliant. Thank you, Al. So we've got a lot of things happening there, and in ten verses, there's an awful lot. So I'm not going to cover all the ten verses. I can't cover every single point. That would be impossible. But clearly, Jesus is appearing in this in several different forms. And the most obvious form is this branch person. And also as a form of a stone. If you notice, stone's got seven eyes, and seven is God's order of completion. And eyes represent knowledge, normally. So we've got complete and perfect knowledge. Um, and so we've got a wonderful kind of prophecy of Jesus coming at the end, and all the sins of the nation will be dealt with in one day, which is fantastic. And it wasn't just the nation, it's the whole world. It's even bigger than the, the and normally, you know, reality isn't as big as a vision, is it? But this time, uh, the vision's even bigger. So, Zechariah. Now, I'm hoping my, my, my computer's going to work. Yep. 
Get to the mouse. Can you see the mouse? Tell me. Oh, I need to turn this around. Maybe I'll click. Make sure it's happening now. Might have to get Alfred to press a few buttons for me. So, um, thanks, Al. You thought you were going to have a night off, but didn't. So, Zachariah. Now, let's, first of all, let's just a little bit of a history lesson. I used to be a historian, archaeologist, that kind of thing, so I, I can't not do this. So, Zechariah was a prophet, um, and he appears at the same time as the prophet Haggai, who's in the book previous to this one. And they're all around about the same time as a guy called Ezra, and Ezra is important too. First of all, we need to remember that the, the, the Jews, of, all of Judea and Israel have been sent off into exile into Babylon, and in the middle of all this exile, Daniel had a dream about 77s and seven years. And uh, uh, I can't remember who it was now, it might be Nehemiah, I've worked out the date was about to come up. <clears throat> anyway, in about 536 BC, and this is attested in historical records, um, the, the, the new king of Babylon, Sirius II, he was suddenly inspired by God to send off uh, a bunch of uh, Israelites back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. And he gave them all sorts of things. And this is recorded in the book of Ezra. Now, Zechariah comes along 16 years later. Because what's happened is they've got a bit discouraged. The remnant that went out, there wasn't a very lot, lot of them. They went out with lots of glory and lots of hope and lots of things. But when they got to Jerusalem, it was a lot harder than expected. And after about two years of trying to build things, the kind of building of the temple kind of ground to a halt. And uh, Joshua, the Joshua in this verse, this, this chapter book, is the Joshua that left with that first remnant. The leader of the gang was Zerubbabel, cool name. Uh, Zerubbabel was the governor, going to be the new governor, and Joshua was going to be the high priest of the new temple that was going to be built. But 16 years later, the temple still hasn't been rebuilt, and the remnant are very discouraged. And so God sends Zechariah and Haggai to get them going again. Um, and there's a whole, Zechariah has a whole series of visions, about eight visions, uh, and each of the visions um, starts, starts broad, ends broad, and then there's two chapters, chapter three and chapter four, in the middle of Zechariah, which are kind of focused in on individuals. So chapter four is about Zerubbabel. Hey, come on, Zerubbabel, let's get going. Chapter three is about Joshua, this high priest. Um, so, 16 years of discouragement. That's what they're facing. Uh, okay, thank you, uh, Al. <clears throat> so who was Joshua? Well, I just mentioned a few things about Joshua. So he's this, supposed to be the high priest, but he hasn't got a temple to be a high priest of. High priest of. All he's got is a pile of rubble. And um, I, I understand they start with, the, start with the altar, so he's got kind of an altar thing going. But the actual temple is still pretty badly um, un under repair. And it it's really has everything's ground to a halt. The Jews have, in the place, have got distracted. It's easy to get distracted after 16 years. I mean, your son, if, you, if you'd travelled to Jerusalem when your son was two, he's now 18 and he wants a wife. Don't you, Sam? So, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of time that it all happens, isn't it? So... Yeah, they start marrying, and there's not enough girls and chaps around, so they start intermarrying with the, with the nations around them, and this causes problems. They start polluting uh, the, the gene pool. Um, they begin to take on other practices and start building their own houses instead of building the temple. And so things get really bogged down. 
Um, just one little thing is when you're reading those three books, Nehemiah, Haggai, and the history books, Nehemiah and Ezra, you'll notice that he's actually called Jeshua, not Joshua in those books. Um, but it's the same name, and it means God saves. In Greek, we would say Jesus. So we, he's a kind of a type of Joshua of the promised land. He's returning to the promised land. He's that kind of Joshua, uh, looking back. But he's also a Jesus looking forward. He's going to be that high priest. And we'll see, he's going to not just be a high priest, he's going to be a bit of a king too. Thank you, Al. This is the kind of world that they lived in. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and Xerxes and Sirius and Darius, they were into major drama and theater. And if you go to palaces around the world, the thing about a palace, it's not about showing off wealth, although it does show off wealth. It's actually about scaring the pants off anybody who's coming. All the ambassadors come, and they go, oh, my giddy arm, look at all this money. Look at this power. And so here we've got this uh, uh, scene from uh, one of the uh, palaces uh, in Babylon. And you can see just behind the king, there's this prince. He's holding a lotus flower. Behind him, we've got... Um, uh, well, the guy with the weird thing on his back, I'm not sure what he is, but the guy behind him, the very, very uh, right-hand side, he's, the, he's like security. And these other guys have got some different kinds of roles, cut bearers and stuff like that. And in front of the king, you've got two incense burners, and the visitor isn't allowed past the incense burner. Not only allowed anywhere near the king, but this fragrance is coming off. Uh, the guy who's standing in front of the incense burner is actually the cut bearer to the king, and he's doing a weird thing with his lips. They, they had a very formalized way. You couldn't just walk up to the king and say, hey, king. You had to kind of do all this stuff. And, and it, each king had his own kind of set of systems. It was massive theater, huge amount of theater. And people, for some people would have to get prepared days in advance to see the king. And if you read uh, some of the other books like, um, oh, I've forgotten the name now, uh, Esther and, and other books like that, you'll see just how scary it is to go in front of a king. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and you can see this from the map, the amount of power these people have. Huge lands, areas of land they, they, they own. Uh, and the palaces are massive. And if you go to Istanbul, the Archaeological Museum in Istanbul, you can see s some of the actual tiles from some of these buildings that people like Daniel walked past and they even touched. Next slide. So this huge theatre, and in this sense of theatre is a figure described as the angel of the Lord. And most commentators say that is Jesus or God incarnate, the angel of the Lord. So we're going to go with he's standing in front of God. And uh, we've got Joshua and we've got Satan. And Zechariah is looking on and a bit later on we, we, we discover there's other people in the room. So we're like a royal court, a royal grandeur, a place of high theatre, a place of high drama, of high power. And in those days, of course, the king was the law. If the king spoke, that became law. That got Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar into all sorts of trouble with uh, Meshach, Shednach, and Abednego. So it's, not, it's also like a courtroom. And when the king speaks, it becomes law, and it happens. It's not like our queen. Our queen speaks, and everybody you know, goes, oh, how interesting. You know, but... In Nebuchadnezzar's time, in Xerxes' time, in Darius' time, those kind of things, when they, when they spoke, that was law. People died with a word. And we've lost that sense of awe. 
because that's how that's kind of an emulation of God. When God spoke, let there be light. There was light. All came to being. So, in this scene, what we've got, we've got Satan, and we've got Joshua. And we're going to see later, Joshua's clothed in these big, filthy rags. And Satan is standing there. And we're told that Satan is, is accusing him. Well, that's implied anyway. Next slide, actually, if you please. Revelation, uh, verse Chapter 12 describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren. He stands there day and night accusing us. And here he is in the same role. And what he's saying is, look at him. He's filthy. He's disgusting. What is he doing in front of you? He shouldn't be here. He's a sinner. You should destroy him. Now, those words aren't recorded, but that, I imagine that's the kind of thing he's saying. Because we find out later that Joshua is actually covered in filthy rags. It's a shocking scene for Zechariah, because this is the high priest. Now, the high priest's role is to, is, is to do the sacrifices on behalf of the people. And if the high priest is filthy and dirty, he's unclean. And if he's unclean, he can't do the sacrifices. And if Satan is accusing Joshua in God's presence, well, then we're, we're doomed. From Zechariah's point of view, he's looking on this whole thing, and we are doomed. Who's going to save us? The high priest, our champion, our hero, he can't do anything. He shouldn't even be here. He's either going to be executed or thrown out. And the only one left standing in front of God will be Satan. We are doomed. And you don't get that from the first verse. But when you read the first verse, that's actually what's happening. We don't get the drama. It's, it's so perfunctory, the way it describes it. You don't get the kind of like a, <gasps> oh no. And, and when Zachariah was sharing this vision, he just said this, I saw Joshua in front of God and Satan was accusing him. And he's in filthy rags. And everybody listening to that, including Joshua, the high priest at the time, would have gone, oh. This is terrible. Worse than terrible, we are doomed. You know, when Satan accuses us, he's normally very accurate. Don't you think? He's always got something to work on. We're all fallen, and he knows which buttons to press. And he can stand there, and he can accuse us. He'll accuse us again and again and again. Martin Luther had this experience. Martin Luther um, was uh, in his cell one night, uh, monkey, yeah, monkey cell, not monkey cell, monkish cell, <coughs> cell where monks live. And um, he says the enemy, the, the enemy, the accuser came to him and started listing all the things that Martin Luther had done wrong and all his thoughts. And it was just like a horrific list of things. And Martin Luther just listened to it and listened to it. And eventually got to the end. He said, have you got anything else to add? Is there anything else to add on the list? He said, well, there's one more thing you need to add to the bottom of this list. And he said this. Um, I'll, I'll read it from uh, the account I read. Luther said, have you written the whole? And Satan answered, yes. And a black and dark catalogue it is. And sufficient to, ter to deter you from making any attempt to reform others. Till you have first purified and reformed yourself. Luther said, 
Take up that slate and write as I shall dictate to you. My sins are many. My transgressions in the sight of the infinitely holy God are countless as the hairs of my head. In me there dwelleth no good thing. But Satan, after the last sin you have recorded, write the announcements which I shall repeat to you from 1 John 1.7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin. Luther in that text had peace. And Satan, knowing the source of his peace, had no more advantage against him. What is Satan's purpose in accusing Joshua? What is Satan's purpose in accusing Martin Luther in that account? It was to prevent Joshua and to prevent Luther from doing what God had called them to do. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to prevent you doing what God has called you to do. And he's going to tell you just how unqualified you are. And you are. And he's going to keep reminding you of why you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. He's going to keep reminding you of your thoughts, your word patterns, all that kind of stuff. Things you've done, things you should have done. Things you thought, things you should have thought. He's going to keep reminding you. But his one purpose is to prevent you doing what God is calling you to do. He wants to make you pointless and irrelevant. Do you feel pointless and irrelevant? Well, if you do, he's doing a good job. Because <laughs> that's not who you are. Next slide, please, Al. Because the whole thing turns on its head. And Zachariah is again shocked, as we too should be shocked. Because who does God rebuke? Who does God rebuke? Yeah. He doesn't even mention Joshua. He doesn't even take any time at all over Joshua's sins, over his appearance. He takes no time at all over it. His gut reaction, his immediate response is, rebuke you, Satan. And his reason? Oh, his reason is because Joshua has been falsely accused. He hadn't done anything wrong at all. It's all a big mistake. No. Satan hadn't made a mistake in describing Joshua. He'd made a mistake in confusing Joshua's state with his calling. Jesus says, uh, God says this. Um, oh, I can't find myself now. Um, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. That's God's only defense. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about a court of law, and you think about rights and wrongs and judgments, this is very bad law. He's guilty, clearly, of being in front of the God in a filthy state. Clearly Joshua's guilty. But the judge ignores the law and says, I don't care. You're chosen. I rebuke you, Satan, because I have chosen Jerusalem, Joshua, you, for a task, for a noble task. I have chosen you. God's criteria is that he has chosen you. It's not your job. Um, next slide, Al. Actually, I can't quite remember what was on it, but um, it might be helpful. God is the one who chose you. Now, I, I could get into all sorts of difficult theological 
issues here with Calvinism and Reformed theology and stuff like that, but I'm not going to go there. But um, God has chosen you. And you can't unchoose yourself, pretty much. Who can unchoose you? Well, Satan can't. Can he? Satan cannot unchoose you. If we go back to Revelation 12.10, it says he's been cast down. The accuser who uh, stands in front of God all day and all night accusing the brethren, he's been cast down, like we found out last week. And in this passage, again, we see Satan is completely powerless and pointless. Everything, we don't know how long he's been standing there making a list of Joshua's issues, but he's wasting his time, just like he's wasting his time with Luther. That's a, that's a good night's sleep he missed. What a waste of time. You can't outrule God. He's the one who makes the choice. And I know some, sometimes we, we kind of get, get ourselves in sort of like theological twists where we tell God we can't do something, he can do something, and you mustn't do that because that would be illegal in, under the law and all this kind of stuff. God's above all that. This is not good law. He's rewriting it. But God, in, when you think about the world in which these guys were living in, the king's word was law. So if he said something different, it still became law. Amazing. Ow. Thanks. So you're chosen. We can't accuse you. And then there's this brand snatch from the fire phrase, which you might have heard of from different places. But this is where it comes from. It appears once or twice in scripture. And it's really interesting because this word brand is actually probably referring to a kind of a, a tool for stirring the fire. And so it's got a purpose. But it's been left in the fire for too long. And it's been somebody snatched it out and rescued it. So again, we're looking at purpose. And God says um, here, um, the law rebuke you, Satan, the law rebuke you, is this not a man, a burning stick snatched from the fire? And in fact, if you looked at Joshua, he was quite black, charred looking. Uh, can I have the next sl sl uh, slide? I don't know if you've ever been snatched from the fire. The, the writing's quite small there, but basically the first picture underneath it's a police officer pulling a five-year-old child out of a burning building. He rescued her. He went in there, and uh, he was a hero, um, but he was like a nameless hero. He was just a cop uh, who'd, who'd been doing his job, and he rescued this, this small girl, five years old. Other people died in the building, but he got to her, and he rescued her. She went to hospital. She never knew who he was. She had to, she, one day, she decided that she really, really wanted to know who it was who'd given her a second chance. And so she found him through Facebook. <laughs> And she invited him to go to a graduation ball. And he was her representative at the, at the graduation ball. And I don't think you can say that. She says, uh, her name was, uh, surname was Aponte, um, Isabella. Isabella Ponte was reunited with Getz, uh, Peter Getz, after tracking him down on Facebook. She said she had wanted to meet the man who had saved her life. I almost died, but I was given a second chance at life. And by then she was 23 years old. I wanted to meet the man who'd given me a second chance. And isn't that our relationship with Jesus? Isn't that what we experience with Jesus? We are brands plucked from the fire. And our response to that is, I want to know Jesus more. Who is this guy? Who saved me? This is why we do this. Thanks, Al. So moving on, um, as we work through, 
The filthy rags. Now, we've already sort of talked about the, the idea of the, the problem of the filthy rags. But what I haven't mentioned is the word for filth here is a really nasty word. Basically, he's covered in poo. It's really, it's like the basest kind of filth. And it's not just that. Can you imagine what he must have smelt like? And it, we talk about rags as well, so he's not even fully clothed. They're just tatters hanging off him. And so his filth and his smell is emanating. Now, the high priest is supposed to come in with frankincense and, 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 and all sorts of incense. He's supposed to bring a holy smell, a beautiful smell before the God. But here we've got this disgusting, reeking mess. And he's just standing there completely filthy. There's nothing good about him. He's horrible. He's really horrible. And, you know, when we come to before we do the, the communion later, you might think, you know, God, there, there are parts of me that I'm just so ashamed of. I am so horrible. I don't deserve this. And you're absolutely right. You don't. But that's not why you're getting it, because you deserve it. You're getting it because he's chosen you, because he loves you. So these filthy rags are just horrible, and they're stopping him from doing his job. And so God says, send off, give him some beautiful clothes. Next uh, thing, please. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention. When I was thinking this through, I, I was imagining, you know, uh, I don't know if many of you have read The Hobbit or seen The, the Hobbit, so-called Hobbit films. Um, and there's a, a section of the story where they're walking through this enchanted wood. It's called Mirkwood. And if they stay on the path, they're fine. But if they stray off the path, there's a kind of sleeping sickness comes over them. And, um, and there's these really nasty spiders. And I, I was going to show you some pictures of spiders, but I didn't know how ac anacrophobic anybody was. So I've, I've stopped myself from doing that. But I just got this sense of these kind of clawing spider webs. And I don't know if you've ever been in the back of a cupboard and, or you've gone through some bushes and you've got covered in spider's webs. They're horrible, aren't they? They really cling to you. And when we were in Oman, uh, when I was younger, we went through this small little forest and uh, went... Oh, my guinea aunt. And there was these spiders that were like this big. And the, the bodies were only as big as your thumb, but their legs are massive. And they literally covered the entire, all the trees, the whole canopy with, with spider webs. You walk in underneath, it's like, oh, my gosh. And you just knew that if he touched you, you'd be like, yeah, you know, all this kind of stuff. I don't mind spiders, personally. Um, but I don't like spider webs clinging onto me. And, and I don't know about you, but the sin's like that, isn't it? It kind of cling, clings onto you. You just brush past it sometimes, and there it is, stuck on you. And you just can't seem to get rid of it. So, oh, no, no. And the more you brush it, the more it's on your hands. And the more you try and deal with it, the worse the mess gets. It's like, you know, yeah. Um, so, and, and, the, and the, the guys in, in, in The Hobbit, um, they, they fall asleep and they get wound up in these spider's webs. And they're going to be the spider's next meal. But fortunately, Frodo Baggins knows what to do. Uh, no, it was Bilbo, wasn't it? Sorry, Bilbo knows what to do. So um, he rescues them. But, you know, it's this whole kind of dark clinginess of filth and sin. And, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what it's like. Jeez. Uh, next slide, Al. Uh, let's move on. Um, so what happens instead is that God, and this is in front of Satan. Remember, Satan's still in the room, as far as you can work out. He hasn't been ejected yet. But in front of us, in front of Satan, in front of all the other people, um, those filthy rags are taken off, 
and these beautiful new priestly robes are put on him. A bit embarrassed about the bit in between, you know, when he, you know, I'm not sure. I know I must have had a curtain or something. I don't know how they did it. But um, <coughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's a prophecy dream thing anyway. So anyway, so he gets all these wonderful, amazing clothes on. And he's able then to stand before God. But where are those clothes from? Did he go off and buy them? Did he go and earn them? Have you noticed Joshua hasn't said a word? He's not opened his mouth. He's dumb, silent before him. All these things are happening to him. I don't know if you can imagine how shameful he must have felt. And then he's got the elation of being redressed in these fantastic robes. How did he feel? I mean, you've been got dirty in the garden and got off and had a shower and you feel cleansed again, don't you? And it's a great feeling, isn't it? Double that, triple that, put a couple more noughts on the end. Perhaps that's how, he, how much he felt by this. It was just totally amazing. And then Zechariah does this amazing thing. Don't forget the turban! Because the priest has to wear the turban. And around the turban there's a gold brassy plate that says, Holy unto the Lord. Now, some commentators say this is a crowning of Joshua. That he's like being a type of priest king. Um, others say, well, no, it's just part of his priestly costume. Regardless, he's being honoured. He's being holy unto the Lord. He's not filthy anymore. And uh, I'll just move on. This reminds me of um, Psalm 23. Verse, yeah, I put pancakes on because I was thinking about this, Psalm 23. He prepares a banquet for me. Where does he prepare the banquet? In the presence of my enemies. I love that part of Psalm 23. In the presence of my enemies, he says, he's all right. He's mine. He's chosen. Before my enemies, he honors me. He raises me up. He lifts me up. He says, you are precious and important. Zephaniah 3.17, a few flips over, says this. Um, oh, actually, I'll read it. It's really cool. Um, we have, me and Meg's had this uh, at our wedding. And so it, it crops up quite often. Um, yeah. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. But will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that cool? In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but instead he will delight over you with singing. I don't know quite how it goes. I don't know what the tune is. Um, I could think of a few tunes, which are probably best not. But, um, you know, he delights in us. And in this picture here, Joshua is being delighted in. There he was, filthy, disgusting, and Satan's going, he's filthy, he's horrible. And God said, no, he's precious, he's wonderful, he's chosen, he's mine. Next slide, Al. And then God turns to Joshua, and he says these really, really important things. He says this, listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates, associates seated before you who are men, the symbol of the things to come. Oh, actually, I'll read a bit before that. Uh, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord, we're on verse uh, 6. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge my courts. And I'll give you a place among these standing here. Amazing. God says, if you keep my laws, I'm going to let you run the, run the house of God, which is what you came here to do in the first place. 16 years ago, you left Jerusalem full of hope. 16 years ago, you came with purpose and vision. Well, you've got that vision back again. You've got that purpose back again. Keep my requirements. Keep my laws. And you'll run the house. Now, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, the last part of that little verse is quite interesting. It says, uh, and have charge of my courts, and I'll give you a place among these standing here. So here we are. We've got the royal court of God, and you've got all these people, satraps and governors and angels and cupbearers and shield bearers and all that kind of stuff you'd have in a royal court. And the thing is, all these kind of royal courts, they had an outer court and an inner court and then another private court. And the private court was places for cupbearers and the people who used to dress the king. And people used to fight over getting into that inner court. If you could get into the king's inner circle, then you'd have influence and you'd have power and you'd have money. It's just like a, you know. And here God's saying is, if you do my stuff, I'm going to bring you in close. You're going to be in here. You're going to be among these associates. You're going to be my friend. As David put it, a friend of God. He's recommissioned. Now look. Um, last slide, thanks, Al. I think we're okay. Oh, yeah, good. Um, oh, can we go to the last one, actually, now? Your God is greater than your accusers. And if that's all you get out of tonight, it's all you need. It's all you need to know. Your God is greater than your accuser. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No, no one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interce and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword... As it's written, for your sake we face death all over the long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 comes before Romans after Romans 7 I do the stuff I don't want to do and I don't do the stuff I want to do and it goes on like that and you think, oh it's so depressing and then Paul just saying no it's not like that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because 
Who will bring a charge against you? No one. Because Satan isn't standing at your right hand accusing you. No, no, no. Who's standing at your right hand? Jesus. And he's interceding on your behalf. So you've got this picture of Joshua standing before God and saying, going, he's awful. Kill him. Do something nasty to him. He doesn't deserve it. And then all of a sudden, we really right forward to present day. And there is us standing there in our filthy rags. And Jesus saying, he is chosen. He is beloved. I've given everything for him. I've died for him. I've given my life for him. I lived 30-odd years without committing a sin for him. I've came down from heaven for him, for her. I've done all this just for them. Is he going to condemn you? Is he? Of course not. Of course not. Why would he go through all that just to condemn you? And yet, how many of us boldly come before his throne? How many of us, when we've made a mistake, come boldly before his throne? Don't we often come sneaking in, begging for forgiveness? Oh, Lord, Lord Jesus, be merciful. But the Bible teaches that we come in and we say, Lord, I've sinned, and I want to thank you that you've covered my sin. We say thank you, not please. That's the promise. We don't plead before God. We thank God, because he's not going to condemn us. Isn't God good? A really good example of just a recommissioning would be Peter uh, in uh, John chapter 21. And, and, and Peter's denounced Jesus three times. And he's ashamed. Deeply ashamed. And then he has this encounter with Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He doesn't even talk about the sin. He doesn't say... Peter, we need to have a little chat about, you know, in the courtyard, the servant girl. We need to, we need to have a little chat about that. He doesn't even do that. He just says, Peter, do you love me? Then go and feed my sheep. And everything that Satan would do to try and stop Peter from fulfilling the Great Commission is written off in a sentence. And I want the same for you, and I'd like the same for myself. That I can write it off. It's dealt with. It's in the past. Cool. We're just going to enter into a time of reflection and communion now. Um, James and, oh, I forgot your name, Liz. Jude, sorry. So, sorry? Dawn, sorry, Dawn. James and Dawn are going to bring around the bread and the wine. I'm just going to break the bread and break the wine. Uh, <laughs> sorry, bless the wine. I break most things, so. Um, if you need gluten-free, we've got gluten-free here. So, um, these are very precious symbols. 
And I hope tonight you've come to understand just how precious they might be. Let's pray. Father God, just thank you so much for your precious blood that you spilt for us. We know you won't condemn us. Instead, Lord, we know your blood purifies us from all sin. And Jesus, we want to thank you for your precious body that was broken for you. Us. That we might be healed and made whole. Lord, we know you won't condemn us. Help us enjoy this feast.